The end. <laughs> you want me to check the closet for monsters tonight? No? <laughs> okay. Good night, kiddos. get scared, just remember to close your eyes and tell yourself it's not real. This is Midnight Apocrypha. For tonight's taste of terror, we bring you Two Twisted Tales by Charles Dickens. Mr. Testator's Visitation by Charles Dickens This was a man who, though not more than thirty, had seen the world in diverse irreconcilable capacities, had been an officer in a South American regiment, among other odd things, but had not achieved much in any way of life, and was in debt and in hiding. He occupied chambers of the dreariest nature in Lyons Inn. His name, however, was not upon the door or doorpost, but in lieu of it stood the name of a friend who had died in the chambers and had given him the furniture. The story arose out of the furniture and was to this effect, that the former holder of the chambers whose name was still upon the door and doorpost be Mr. Testator. Mr. Testator took a set of chambers in Lyons Inn when he had but very scanty furniture for his bedroom and none for his sitting-room. He had lived some wintry months in this condition, and had found it very bare and cold. One night past midnight, when he sat writing, and had still had writing to do that must be done before he went to bed, he found himself out of coals. He had coals downstairs, but had never been to his cellar. However, the cellar key was on his mantel-shelf, and if he went down and opened the cellar it fitted, he might fairly assume the coals in the cellar to be his. As to his laundress, she lived among the coal-wagons and Thames watermen, for there were Thames watermen at that time, in some unknown rat-hole by the river, down lanes and alleys on the other side of the strand. As to any other person, to meet or obstruct him, Lyons Inn was dreaming, drunk, maudlin, moody, betting, brooding over bill discounting or renewing, asleep or awake, minding its own affairs." Mr. Testator took his coal scuttle in one hand, his candle and key in the other, and descended to the dismalest underground dens of Lyons Inn, where the late vehicles in the streets became thunderous, and all the water pipes in the neighborhood seemed to have Macbeth's men sticking in their throats and to be trying to get it out. After groping here and there among low doors to no purpose, Mr. Testator at length came to a door with a rusty padlock which his key fitted. Getting the door open with much trouble and looking in, he found no coals but a confused pile of furniture. Alarmed by this intrusion on another man's property, he locked the door again, found his own cellar, filled his scuttle, and returned upstairs. 
But the furniture he had seen ran on casters, across and across Mr. Testator's mind incessantly, when in the chill hour of five in the morning he got to bed. He particularly wanted a table to write at, and a table expressly made to be written at had been the piece of furniture in the foreground of the heap. When his laundress emerged from her burrow in the morning to make his kettle boil, he artfully led up to the subject of cellars and furniture, but the two ideas had evidently no connection in her mind. When she left him, and he sat at his breakfast, thinking about the furniture, he recalled the rusty state of the padlock, and inferred that the furniture must have been stored in the cellars for a long time, was perhaps forgotten, owner dead perhaps. After thinking it over a few days, in the course of which he could pump nothing out of Lyons Inn about the furniture, he became desperate, and resolved to borrow that table. He did so, that night. He had not had the table long when he determined to borrow an easy chair. He had not had that long when he made up his mind to borrow a bookcase, then a couch, then a carpet and rug. By that time he felt he was in furniture stepped in so far as that it could be no worse to borrow it all. Consequently, he borrowed it all and locked up the cellar for good. He had always locked it after every visit. He had carried up every separate article in the dead of night, and, at the best, had felt as wicked as a resurrection man. Every article was blue and furry when he had brought it into his rooms, and he had had, in a murderous and guilty sort of way, to polish it up while London slept. Mr. Testator lived in his furnished chambers two or three years more, and gradually lulled himself into the opinion that the furniture was his own. This was his convenient state of mind when, late one night, a step came up the stairs, and a hand passed over his door feeling for his knocker, and then one deep and solemn rap was rapped that might have been a spring in Mr. Testator's easy chair to shoot him out of it, so promptly was it attended with that effect. With a candle in his hand, Mr. Testator went to the door, and found there a very pale and very tall man, a man who stooped, a man with very high shoulders, a very narrow chest, and a very red nose. A shabby genteel man. He was wrapped in a long threadbare black coat, fastened up the front with more pins than buttons, and under his arm he squeezed an umbrella without a handle, as if he were playing bagpipes. He said, I ask your pardon, but can you tell me, and stopped, his eyes resting on some object within the chambers. Can I tell you what, asked Mr. Testator, noting his stoppage with quick alarm. I ask your pardon, said the stranger, but this is not the inquiry I was going to make. Do I see in there any small article of property belonging to me? Mr. Testator was beginning to stammer that he was not aware when the visitor slipped past him into the chambers. There, in a goblin way which froze Mr. Testator to the marrow, he examined first the writing-table and said, "'Mine,' then the easy-chair and said, "'Mine,' and then the bookcase and said, "'Mine,' then turned up the corner of the carpet and said, "'Mine.' in a word, expected every item of furniture from the cellar in succession, and said, Mine. Towards the end of this investigation, Mr. Testator perceived that he was sodden with liquor, and that the liquor was gin. He was not unsteady with gin, either in his speech or carriage, but he was stiff with gin in both particulars. Mr. Testator was in a dreadful state for, according to his making out of the story, the possible consequences of what he had done in recklessness and hardihood flashed upon him in their fullness for the first time. 
When they had stood gazing at one another for a little while, he tremulously began, "'Sir, I am conscious that the fullest explanation, compensation, and restitution are your due. They shall be yours. Allow me to entreat that, without temper, without even natural irritation on your part, we may have a little drop of something to drink,' interposed the stranger. "'I am agreeable.' Mr. Testator had intended to say a little quiet conversation, but with great relief of mind adopted the amendment. He produced a decanter of gin and was bustling about for hot water and sugar when he found that his visitor had already drunk half of the decanter's contents. With hot water and sugar the visitor drank the remainder before he had been an hour in the chamber by the chimes of the Church of St. Mary and the Strand, and during the process he frequently whispered to himself, Mine... The gin gone, and Mr. Testator wondering what was to follow it, the visitor rose and said, with increased stiffness, "'At what hour of the morning, sir, will it be convenient?' Mr. Testator hazarded, "'At ten. "'Sir,' said the visitor, "'at ten to the moment I shall be here.' He then contemplated Mr. Testator somewhat at leisure and said, "'God bless you.' How is your wife? Mr. Testator, who never had a wife, replied with much feeling, Deeply anxious, poor soul, but otherwise well. The visitor thereupon turned and went away, and fell twice in going downstairs. From that hour he was never heard of. Whether he was a ghost, or a spectral illusion of conscience, or a drunken man who had no business there, or the drunken rightful owner of the furniture with a transitory gleam of memory, whether he got safe home, or had no time to get to, whether he died of liquor on the way, or lived in liquor ever afterwards, he never was heard of more. This was the story, received with the furniture, and held to be as substantial by its second possessor in an upper set of chambers in grim Lyons Inn. Captain Murderer by Charles Dickens The first diabolical character who intruded himself on my peaceful youth was a certain Captain Murderer. This wretch must have been an offshoot of the Bluebeard family, but I had no suspicion of the consanguinity in those times. His warning name would seem to have awakened no general prejudice against him, for he was admitted into the best society and possessed immense wealth. Captain Murderer's mission was matrimony, and the gratification of a cannibal appetite with tender brides. On his marriage morning he always caused both sides of the way to church to be planted with curious flowers, and when his bride said, Dear Captain Murderer, I ever saw flowers like these. What are they called? He answered, They are called garnish for house lamb, and <laughs> laughed at his ferocious practical joke in a horrid manner, disquieting the minds of the noble bridal company with a very sharp show of teeth then displayed for the first time. He made love in a coach in six, and married in a coach in twelve, and all his horses were milk-white horses with one red spot on the back, which he caused to be hidden by the harness. For the spot would come there, though every horse was milk-white when Captain Murderer brought him, and the spot was young bride's blood. To this terrific point I am indebted for my first personal experience of a shudder and cold beads on the forehead.
when Captain Murderer had made an end of feasting and revelry, and had dismissed the noble guests and was alone with his wife on the day-month of their marriage. It was his whimsical custom to produce a golden rolling-pin and a silver pie-board. Now there was this special feature in the captain's courtships, that he always asked if the young lady could make pie-crust, and if she couldn't by nature education she was taught well. When the bride saw Captain Murderer produce the golden rolling-pin and silver pie-board, she remembered this and turned up her laced silk sleeves to make a pie. The captain brought out a silver pie-dish of immense capacity, and the captain brought out flour and butter and eggs and all things needful, except the inside of the pie. Of materials for the staple of the pie itself, the captain brought out none. Then the lovely bride said, Dear Captain Murderer, what pie is this to be? He replied, A meat pie. Then said the lovely bride, Dear Captain Murderer, I see no meat. The captain humorously retorted, Look in the glass. She looked in the glass, but still she saw no meat. And then the captain roared with laughter, and suddenly frowning and drawing his sword, bade her roll out the crust. So she rolled out the crust, dropping large tears upon it all the time, because he was so cross. And when she had lined the dish with crust, and had cut the crust all ready to fit the top, the captain called out, I see meat in the glass. And the bride looked up at the glass, just in time to see the captain cutting her head off. And he chopped her in pieces, and peppered her, and salted her, and put her in the pie, and sent it to the baker's, and ate it all, and picked the bones. Captain Murderer went on in this way, prospering exceedingly, until he came to choose a bride from two twin sisters, and at first didn't know which to choose. For though one was fair and the other dark, they were both equally beautiful. But the fair twin loved him, and the dark twin hated him, so he chose the fair one. The dark twin would have prevented the marriage if she could, but she couldn't. However, on the night before it, much suspecting Captain Murderer, she stole out and climbed his garden wall, and looked in at his window through a chink in the shutter, and saw him having his teeth filed sharp. Next day she listened all day, and heard him make his joke about the house lamb. And that day month he had the paste rolled out, and cut the fair twin's head off, and chopped her in pieces, and peppered her, and salted her, and put her in the pie, and sent it to the baker's and ate it all and picked the bones. Now, the dark twin had had her suspicions much increased by the filing of the captain's teeth, and again by the house-lamb joke. Putting all things together, when he gave out that her sister was dead, she divined the truth and determined to be revenged. So she went up to Captain Murderer's house, and knocked at the knocker and pulled at the bell. And when the captain came to the door, said, Dear Captain Murderer, marry me next, for I always loved you and was jealous of my sister. The captain took it as a compliment, and made a polite answer, and the marriage was quickly arranged. On the night before it, the bride again climbed to his window and again saw him having his teeth filed sharp. At this sight, she laughed such a terrible laugh at the chink in the shutter that the captain's blood curdled. And he said, I hope nothing has disagreed with me. At that, she laughed again. A still more terrible laugh, and the shutter was opened and search made, but she was nimbly gone, and there was no one. 
Next day they went to church in a coach and twelve, and were married. And that day month she rolled the pie crust out, and Captain Murderer cut her head off, and chopped her in pieces, and peppered her, and salted her, and put her in the pie, and sent it to the bakers, and ate it all, and picked the bones. But before she began to roll out the paste, she had taken a deadly poison of a most awful character, distilled from Toad's eyes and Spider's knees, and Captain Murderer had hardly picked her last bone when he began to swell, and to turn blue, and to be all over spots, and to scream. And he went on swelling, and turning bluer, and being more all over spots, and screaming until he reached from floor to ceiling and from wall to wall, and then, at one o'clock in the morning, he blew up with a loud explosion. At the sound of it, all the milk-white horses in the stables broke their halters and went mad, and they galloped over everybody in Captain Murderer's house, beginning with the family blacksmith who had filed his teeth, until the whole were dead, and then they galloped away. Mr. Testator's Visitation and Captain Murderer were written in 1860 by Charles Dickens for the magazine All the Year Round. This audio production of Mr. Testator's Visitation and Captain Murderer has been recorded and edited by R.A. Reuter. Midnight Apocrypha is a podcast dedicated to the revival of retro radio dramas through new productions of series from the golden age of radio. Midnight Apocrypha is brought to you by Widener University's Lone Brick Theatre Company in partnership with Forgotten Lore Theatre. If you enjoyed our little fiction, you can find out more about Lone Brick Theatre Company on Facebook and Instagram. Go now to subscribe, like, or follow Midnight Apocrypha. Or you never know what may find you.